I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I don't normally do events on Val Dunican-style stores. <laughs> and so already we're, we're, we're voyaging into new territory. I don't know, have you ever used one of these I've before? Used, I have used one of these. Uh, yeah. You're a pro. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Andy Miller. I'm a reader, author, and editor of books, and I am the co-host of the Backlisted podcast. Uh, it's very nice to be here at the LRB Bookshop. Um, Simon Garfield is the author of books about, amongst other things, the music business, AIDS, wrestling, Radio One, the colour mauve, the early days of steam locomotion, fonts, maps, letters, philately, etc. He has the most daunting portfolio of any non-fiction author working in Britain today. And he has turned his attention uh, now to uh, miniatures, how small things illuminate the world. Um, we're going to talk for about 40 minutes about this book and then we're going to open it up to questions from you, the audience. Now, in order to incentivise you to uh, ask good questions and not make statements, we have... <laughs> come on. We have an amazing prize that Simon is donating to the best question which Simon and I will decide in a huddle after you have attempted to enthrall us with your... So you need to raise your game. That's what, that's what we're saying as an audience. So we're here to entertain you for 40 minutes, but then you need to uh, impress us. But the prize is amazing, right? Genuinely astonishing prize. So when we get to the questions, be thinking. Even while we're talking, be thinking. You are going to want to win this thing. <laughs> we just go thing. to the questions now. Should we just yes, let's have an hour of questions. <laughs> yeah. That would be fine. So, ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together. Welcome Simon Garfield. Simon, my first question to you, before I ask you to define your terms, what is a small thing and why write about it? My first question to you is, is small beautiful? And if so, why? Gosh. This is actually, I thought this would be a nice, easy, sort of going thing. <laughs> Turning a something to think about it. Small is uh, not necessarily uh, beautiful. As I, as I want to make clear in, in, in the book, um, not all the objects uh, that I talk about in miniature are, in fact, small. So um, 
classic example is the miniature hotels in Las Vegas are not small things as such, but they're miniature Paris or miniature New York, New York or miniature um, Venice. So not necessarily is the answer, but I, I promise you I wasn't going to read this out unless there was a prompt, and there is a prompt. Um, there, are, there are two um, lovely quotes um, at the beginning of the book, one by the sculptor Alberto Giam, uh, Giacometti, who says, by doing something a half centimetre high, you are more likely to get a sense of the universe than if you try to do the whole sky. And the second quote from um, the art director and magazine designer of Esquire is, the only thing that gets better when it gets bigger is a penis. <laughs> Uh, so that's 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 the best answer I can give at this point. That's so small that's is fine. small is not always beautiful. Is I guess is what that I'm that would not be a prize-winning uh, answer-stroke question <laughs> later on. Just to give you a steer. Um, uh, <laughs> um, could you then define your terms? Because one of my favourite bits of this wonderful book is actually the beginning, where I detect what you do is you attempt to define for uh, your reader what they will or won't find in this book about miniature things. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to, only on that, because I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to define what these things are, I'm just going to read, and this will only be, I think, maybe one or two bits that I, I will uh, read. And I say, to distinguish between the, mere, the miniature and the merely small, I have adopted a simple qualifier. A miniature must be a reduced version of something that was originally be, be, uh, bigger or led to something bigger and it should be consciously created as such. I should also say, which actually I don't think I didn't really make clear in this, is that I'm only talking about objects, not talking about people. So I was interviewed on uh, Radio London last week uh, by a woman called Jo Good, who, um, and I can say this because she mentioned this, she references on every program, is a very, very small person. And um, I, and she mentioned it when she talked to, to, to me, and I had to make clear that I wasn't talking about small people or small dogs, um, even if they were, you know, specifically bred small. I was talking about objects, and that's, uh, that, that's an important thing, I think. And then I say, the other things in this book may also perform a miniature duty, uh, explain a concept, solve a puzzle, jog a memory, a souvenir of a building on a key ring, and there's one there, the dangling Eiffel Tower, though not very interesting, fits the bill, as does a miniature bottle of gin. A Volkswagen Beetle does not, nor does an ever so small thimble, no matter how keen are those who collect them. Mini bars and lapdogs are borderline, as is the art of bonsai cultivation, in which small is created by pur purposeful pruning and potting. A toy poodle made of plastic in a classroom tableau made by five-year-olds is of no interest to anyone. <laughs> One could create further rules and dictate dimensions the way an airline dictates the carry-on, but it will soon become clear that miniatures occupy a significant enough space in our world to create their own instinctual presence. You'll know one if you see one, and after a while, 
you may see nothing else. And that was a classic case with this, is that, you know, I, I, as, as Andy mentioned, sort of I cover a wide range of topics, and these are things I'm just genuinely interested in. I always say, terrible cliche, you know, now for me, I always say, you know, I feel I'm being paid to get an education. I find something I'm interested in, or maybe an editor wants me to write about, and then I go in head first and, and learn a lot and ho hopefully explain it. One of the things that was absolutely clear with this was exactly how many miniature objects we just see all the time and we take for granted. And it, it's as simple as this, really. You know, it's as simple as model colors. This is Andy's model car. I don't want you to think I'm, you know. And um, it's, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an monkey original mobile. monkey mobile from the 1960s in which three members of the monkeys are visible. Specifically, Peter Talk, Mickey Dolans, and Michael Nesmith. Appropriately, Davy Jones was lost many years ago. Uh, but anyway, yes, so that well, was so the smallest member of the band. Yes, pre shrunk. Yeah. Yeah. So that would fit the bill, wouldn't it? Die cast models. And I, that's how I began, yeah. really. I mean, I, um, you know, one begins one's journey in the mere, in the mere miniature world um, as. Uh, a child, inevitably, uh, and so much of adult miniature obsession and interest is about control. It's about how we try and bring a sense of order to what might be a doomy and, and, and chaotic world. And it begins at childhood with, with toys, inevitably. So as a kid, one has very little control in the world over anything, really. You know, it, it's dictated by our parents, it's dictated by school, what we do. Mm. I'm talking about age of, you know, whatever, five, six, seven, eight. But if we have a toy that we can somehow feel that we're in control of, makes that's why the toys have power. And uh, that could be, you know, the old toys, the Action Man and Barbie dolls. Uh, Lego obviously fits the bill on that as well, because, you know, we're, or even though we're building... <coughs> buildings with Lego or toy cars or whatever it is, they're still very, very small. Um, and that goes for sort of anything, I think, that we play with, you know, pretty much at your childhood. You're surprisingly hostile to Lego in this book. <laughs> <laughs> I could am, you, and I could don't you, Could you explain why? It's interesting, really. I, well, I, as, as I hint in the book, it, it probably goes back to the fact that I wasn't terribly good at it and other people were building these, these whole sort of empires and I was Sticking sort of, it to Lego. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but the other reason was I feel that the things that I love in this are the things that are, you know, sort of handmade really, are, are created by um, people with great passions and um, obsessions. And Lego for me now has become this huge corporate empire really. I mean, not only the films... But, you know, anywhere you, you go, really, you see Lego is actually putting itself into sort of architectural competitions, which is fine. It's a kind of useful tool. But my criterion, which I didn't mention there, is, is that anything that you can put in the washing machine and comes out fine isn't going to be of great interest to me. Really. I want stuff that's <laughs> a little bit more fragile and, and, and handmade than that. So you were talking about, um, let's start with toys. Um, there's a section in the book about... Queen Mary's Doll's House, uh, which I was not aware of, is the most extraordinary artefact of empire imaginable. Yeah. Right. Now, yeah. where is it kept? So, with Windsor Castle, it's probably, I mean, you know, you go to Windsor to see Windsor Castle, but in, if you're looking for one particular great attraction, then it's Queen Mary's Doll's House. So how, how many people have seen Queen Mary's Doll's House here and were familiar with it? 
Okay, so, I've never heard. I've never uh, well, that, heard. but that's not very many. So, no. um, I mean, I think we're looking at... Small number. Looking at the 1920s, and it was... So Queen Mary was... And, and everyone knew her as this. She, she, and, and I don't know whether she would admit it herself, but all her family knew that she would go anywhere on a visit and, said, and, and, and say... Wow, that is absolutely the most beautiful thing. You know, what, what a wonderful thing. How, how, how perfectly that would fit into my life. In other words, basically say, please give that object to me. I'm Queen Mary. And, and I'd like this. <laughs> and she, she was absolutely sort of known for, But so, um, and, and she saw a doll's house on one of her visits. And um, a, a, a relative thought this would make her the ultimate present for her. I don't know whether any of you have been watching Succession, um, but it was basically it's how you... It, it, Succession is a um, Sky TV series, and the head of it has, uh, is a Murdoch-type character, has their birthday, and everyone underneath wants to buy, them the, wants to buy him the ultimate prayer present. And it was the same with this doll's mm-hmm. house. What happens is Lutyens is commissioned to make this doll's house, and he thinks originally... It's a doll's house. Why am I? And then he thinks, actually, what I can do is make not only you know guarantee my knighthood and everything else, but also um, uh, make the best doll's house that there's ever been. And the way I'm going to do this, not only by building it huge, and it came, it sort of comes up to here. And when you see it at Windsor, they've lifted the whole thing off. So you can you can go all the way around. It's glass case. Mass, massive security, as you'd, you'd imagine, um, but you can see everything. And what he did was commission. Uh, the leading artists of the day, the leading um, manufacturers of anything of the day, to make what they did very, very small. So if you were the lead maker of career, career kit bats, you would make that. If you were... Um, the poet you know, laureate. The poet laureate, you would... I mean, this is absolutely true. You would um, make special poems which would be bound in tiny little books which would fit in uh, the library there. And the library itself has, I think, 700 volumes which are all handmade. Uh, many written Rudyard Kipling, I think, was yeah. uh, a, a classic. And, and uh, various other pairs. You, 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 like the that. heroes of this the... story are the people who grumpily refuse to, <laughs> to, That's to, right. to give their labour. That's right. I should, I should read that yeah. bit, bit, bit out, actually, because it's, um, this, is, this is the bit where um, you know, Lurchins originally said, uh, actually, no, this isn't um, for me. Um, but um, this is what other people kind of thought. They felt sort of insulted that they, they should write something uh, for a doll's house. So Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, wrote a special Sherlock Holmes story that's only actually quite recently been issued. Um, what's, so it, what's it called? It is called How Watson Learned the Trick. So both uh, Virginia Woolf and George Bernard Shaw uh, turned the project down. <laughs> but the least apologetic, and they, they said, I'm sorry, it's not for me, or you make up and see it's got too much on. But Elgar, who was asked to write a tiny bit of music to be put then sort of in the music room in this doll's house on a stand. Uh, so um, Secret Sassoon wrote in his diary of meeting Elgar and Elgar saying, we all know that the king and queen are incapable of appreciating anything artistic. They've never asked for the full score of my second symphony to be added to the library at Windsor, but I'm asked to 
contribute to a doll's house for the Queen. I consider it an insult to an artist to be asked to mix himself up in such nonsense. Um, and I say the, 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 the doll's house is absurd and fantastical, but it's also an absolutely sort of extraordinary thing to witness. And I wonder whether, having seen it, uh, Elgar didn't regret his decision. And so the, the doll's house, in the doll's house chapter, you juxtapose very interestingly and I'd, be, I'd quite like to know how the writer in you made this decision. So you've got the toy, the kind of empire toy, and that's juxtaposed with crime scenes, murder scenes, that were recreated based on real murders yeah. by an American woman called Frances Glessner Lee. Lee. Yeah. And now, could, could you, A, just say a bit about what those tableau are, but also, what is it about the putting those two things together in the chapter that you felt well, that's going to work? Uh, the, the reason I thought that would be interesting, I mean, I should preface that by, by saying there are a huge amount of miniature subjects and objects that I could have examined in the book, and yet it is only, you know, 250 pages, and it is only a lo lovely, you know, squat size here. Um, so I had to be quite careful about what I did and didn't put, put in, and I was always looking, as one does, when you're taking even a small, big subject such as this, and you're trying to construct a sort of architecture to the book, and that's sort of the key. I mean, that's, in a way, what makes any book, any book of non-fiction for me, unless it's a clear biography or a clear sort of um, chronological history work, you're getting a lot of composite elements and you're trying to make them into, into a, a sort of singular narrative that works. So the reason that Frances Glessner Lee appears um, in this book um, is because, first of all, she was making her crime scene tableaus, and I'll say a little bit more about them, pretty much at the same time, a little bit mm -hmm. later, 10, 15 years later. And also, they were just the complete opposite. So I wanted to show, so Queen Mary's Doll's House, the most beautiful examples of everything, um, exquisitely done. Um, Frances Glessner Lee was a, um, uh, a wealthy single uh, woman, a grandmother, living in uh, Chicago in the 1930s. And she, like a lot, a lot of people, uh, were interested in doll's houses as a hobby. Um, she had become very friendly with um, someone who ran the local Chicago detective agency, or the, the, worked in the sort of forensic element of the uh, Chicago police force, and uh, realized that he didn't really have any visual aids to teach anyone coming up, any young detectives, about the art of detection and forensics and what to look for. And so uh, it's unclear whether it's her idea or his idea, but she constructed... 18, I think, or 18 existing tableau of crime scenes that she twisted a little bit from local newspapers of things that actually happened, and she made them incredibly vivid. Um, and I've got a picture. I mean, some, I, this may or may not sort of work for my iPad, but you may possibly get an idea of uh, what, what this is, what she's like uh, from here. Here we are. So this is... Wow. This is her. Um, so you get an idea. She has a real sort of Miss Marple element to her. Some of you can see that. Working away, it's on the, it's her kitchen table, working on her models. And this you is... Just pan sorry. that round the room, because that's really extraordinary. Okay, sorry. If you can, sorry, yeah, I'm ignoring yeah. you. I'm sorry about that there. 
and that's her, her there. So, um, and this is what she <coughs> made, amongst other many gruesome <laughs> scenes here. Can you see this at the back? And how big is that figure? So this figure is um, about six to eight inches tall. And this is a woman who uh, hung, well, actually it's not clear whether she hung herself or whether she was hung by anyone else. And that's sort of what it's all about, really, um, with, with her. Um, so and where, her, sorry, sorry, I didn't say, so her yeah. big thing, really, was I'm going to present you with a scene. Um, I don't necessarily want to know who the murderer is. It was also some sort of, it was a, it was, a, it did have an Agatha Christie feel. She would, mm. she would include some clues and some facts about the scene that you were seeing. And it was, a, the actual scene was, it was, I, I, I say, it was a sort of classic 1930s TV size. It was sort of this kind of size. And you looked at it and you thought, okay, what has gone on here? Who would the murderer be? There was always a murder. How come the body was in the bath with the tap still flowing, but the bed was unmade and there was uh, some strange sort of mixture in the kitchen area? And was that cyanide? Was that... And so the idea was not, not solely that you could solve any particular crime, but that you looked and you looked like nothing before and that nothing was touched. And that was the other thing. She, she, she felt that her... her um, uh, her, her friend, the, the, the detective, felt initially that you know anything could be moved around. He said, "No, you've got to look at the exact scene as it as it happened at, at the time." And so she froze this scene. And so that was that was. I mean, it's a long answer to your, to your question, but in a way, it's all about looking. The whole thing about miniatures about looking. Yeah. You look at the doll's house, and you look closer at a small car than you've ever looked at a big car. You look at a, uh, the, the, you know, the way um, a, 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 a cricket ball is sewn, because it's so small, you just look closer, as normally you would toss a cricket yeah, ball up and yeah, you wouldn't yeah. ignore it. And the same with the crime scene, but the, with the crime scenes, times 10, really. So you know, her line was, the closer you look, the more you see, the closer you look. And these were sort of nutshells, she called them. Um, and, and so that was why, and there was, also, um, another example, you know, in the, in, in, in the book, um, where, I mean, the same chapter, really, of these wonderful period homes in, uh, also, Chicago, it happens to be, so those three were linked together. So you've got, um, I want to move on to another example of this, so I'm very interested in this. You've got a doll's house that is operating not just as a doll's house, but as a repository of the culture of empire. Yeah, yeah. You've got a, a crime scene which operates, recreated crime scenes which operate on two levels. They're kind of tableau, they're kind of artistic tableau, but they're also, they have a practical function. Yeah. And then you also interview Jake and Dinos Chapman for the book. Now, they are doing similar things to both those projects we've just talked about, obviously with more yeah. penises uh, for noses. Many more. Um, but... Are they using many of the same techniques, any of the same modelling techniques, to create art as opposed to create a doll's house or to create a crime scene? I, I, should, I should just, I mean, I'll show you an example of this. Again, I'm afraid some of you won't be able to see. This is uh, one of their hellscapes. This is a model which is uh, in a vitrine about so big and it's off the ground. It's, it's not like the, the vitrine, I mean, if you, you may have see, seen these, of course, but it's not like the dissimilar to um, the... Um, you know, so the, the kind of Jeff Koons baseball, uh, sorry, basketball uh, veer, you know, veer tween. It's sort of, and it's basically this is 
if you can see it. This is Ronald McDonald uh, atop a, um, a, a, a cross, uh, in fact, many Ronald McDonalds atop a cross, uh, surrounded by members of the Ku Klux Klan, surrounded by uh, tiny Hitler stroke Nazi figures in uh, uniform and the full German uh, leather outfits. And it's a, um, it's, a, it's a bizarre sort of combination of uh, revulsion in all things awful, really. And so that, that from the Nazis to McDonald's to the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and you might think, well, what's McDonald's? But obviously their big thing is sort of, you know, um, it, uh, globalization, consumerism, and, and kind of all of that. And, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's generally uh, sort of ba bad food in all ways. So for me, this is absolutely an artistic um, interpretation, uh, which again, you look at far more closely, you would th think about mm. this far more. The fact that it's 3D for me on something like this is a significant thing. Yeah. They, they found, this, found these things, they've done, I think, I don't know, uh, I was gonna say nine, I don't, I don't know why I've got nine, but many of these things, and they are hellish, they're called hellscapes, and they are hellish to do, because each figure is um, a manipulated original uh, figure, which they buy, and then they change in some form. Uh, so they would, they would buy a railway, a figure that you would normally use on a railway mo model, and they would, uh, or they and their team, it must be said, extensive team, would paint a, a Nazi uniform um, on them. And they are shocking things um, to look mm. at. I was keen in the book not just to, there are a lot of fun things in here, and there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of nice, kind of warm people, and I'm not sure whether I would class the Chapmans uh, amongst those. Certainly not their work, but it's, uh, it's, it's powerful, powerful art. And what I'm interested in is when you'd spent several years pulling this book together and you've been looking at the, the subject of miniatures, how you create miniatures, we talked about three, three different types of miniature tableau there with three theoretically different functions. Yeah. Did it change the way you looked at them? So when you come to a piece of art or a practical reconstruction or a child's toy, what is the first thing that you as a now expert on the miniature think to yourself? Well, the first thing to say is there's no general reaction. There's no easy kind of reaction to anything. And I think, I mean, you know, as a writer, I'm looking for a good narrative tale. I should say at this point, and <laughs> A while ago, long before, long, long before, um, I even uh, thought of, of that, that Andy would be a great person to talk to here. I said to him, I'm doing this book about miniature things, and I know that you have written quite extensively <laughs> about miniature golf, crazy golf. And I thought, OK. They're two different things, actually. <laughs> but, uh, but, but sure, go ahead. Um, and I thought, OK, so. I'm interested in this, not because so much it's a miniature form of golf, which it obviously isn't, um, but it's, it's obviously called that. But because of well the symbols, well yes, thank you. Thank but you, because yes. of the symbols that you try and get, um, a, you putt a ball through. So they would often be windmills, hence the title of your book, mm -hmm. which is? This is called Tilting at Windmills. Tilting at Windmills. Um, and um, 
they or would often be, oh, you try and get it through the legs of the Eiffel Tower or something um, like that. And I thought, okay, but these, I thought initially, what are the interesting objects uh, on, you know, the most popular ones that you see on Creators, and what's the idea that it's not in the book. Not in the book. Andy is not in the in 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 the book. Sadly, because I. But there are one hundred and ten thousand words available uh, <laughs> via another source on this <laughs> on true. this fascinating topic. I nailed it. He nailed it. Nailed it. But the um, the other reason, the only other reason it's not in there, is because I couldn't find a good narrative way through, and I couldn't mm-hmm. find enough connections with other things in the book to actually uh, make that work. And so uh, maybe this isn't even really a, a, a kind of answer to the question, but you say, well, what do I look at? Do, yeah. I, do I see things in a, in, a, in a kind of new way or new light or what's the first mission? And ultimately, for me, I'm only looking initially for the narrative. So the yeah, art for the story. For the story. Mm-hmm. So the art itself is not the key. Yeah. You know, a, a, a great many people, Rachel White, Reed, and a huge amount of other artists who I just mentioned in passing, I could have focused on them, but the Chapmans talk most interestingly about it and their development of these um, hellscapes are very interesting. And that goes sort of across the board. Um, so I, I, one thing I wanted to do was, you know, tell a story of someone who's devoted their entire life to building things in miniature. Mm. And I found that probably a lot of these people. And I found one guy called Philip Warren, who um, lives in uh, the West Country, who has spent, I think, 70 years now building 440 warships out of matchsticks. And I thought, that is both bonkers and (laughs) admirable. I thought that was a fantastic thing in a way. If you yeah. know what you want to do in your life from the age of 14 and you see it through till into your 80s. You, you can get a lot of warships. You can get a lot of, he <laughs> yeah. says he has, because he began when he was just after the war, I think. And um, he began, um, and now he realizes having spent his entire life doing these things, um, that um, first of all, the, the outside world, he says, has become increasingly unattractive. Um, <laughs> but, but also he has built the entire history of warships. Um, and this is an incredible thing. He, he says the problem now is he's, he's getting to the point where he, he, he says his hands are still fine, they're not share, yeah. share shaking. But he doesn't quite, and he's still got the patience, but he realizes this isn't going to go on forever. His son is a bit interested in showing it. But only a bit, and he basically packs all these things and displays them. In uh, he takes them in his uh, Vauxhall Astra or whatever, and takes them around the country. And they are wonderful, wonderful things to uh, behold. But he realizes actually they should be in a museum, and my God, they should be because these are beautiful, mm. creative things. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's that's a story that I wanted to tell because that's that's a you know a life's work. Well, you were saying at the beginning about control. You were saying how you know. Um, I'm extrapolating slightly, but, you know, hobbyists. Hobbyists are a great British thing. Yeah. And what part of hobbying is finding a little part of the world that you can dictate to. Yeah, yeah. And you talk about model villages. You talk to a guy called Tim Dunn, who yeah. sadly couldn't be here tonight, but um, Tim is an expert on model villages. And you talk to him uh, about... Not a huge world. He, I mean, not, he, not, not, not a no, huge no. field, rather, I But he say, had yeah. worked at Beckenscott, yeah. hadn't he? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah. Okay, and, and yeah. so the idea of creating your own... Uh, town where you are the god figure yeah. does seem to be something that runs through people's motivations yeah. for yeah. making these yeah. miniature Play, communities. Playing, right? play, playing god is, is absolutely key to it. I mean, I also think there's a... It's not, it's not a sort of messianic kind of d desire, uh, I don't think, here. It's not something that dictators wouldn't be happy with a model village. It's not enough for them. But I think what people like to do is, and Tim Dunn's theory on this is, that they are made by people who are generally frustrated with the world, the real world, and uh, they can make their own world. And I think there's a quite a meditative element to this as well, which is um, essentially you can sh shut everything out, you can go into your front room or your shed or attic or whatever, and build something that's per perfect, or as perfect as you want to make it, and you spend a lot of time. And it, it is interesting, I mean, the hobbyist thing, we tend to think of as a very, somehow a very old English thing, and I, I love mm. that idea. But then you look at Europe, Europe yeah, and you find sure. it's not so much. Sure. So uh, the model village you mentioned, um, Beckham-Scott, um, which is, you know, a 20-mile drive from here in the... Beaconsfield, um, is 90 years old next year and is the inspiration for uh, a huge amount of model villages all over Europe and the world. What tends to happen now is, uh, I don't know whether it's a result of globalization or whether we feel that a model village isn't enough. People are building model worlds. So I go, mm. I go to Hamburg um, and um, to a, a place called Miniature Wunderland, which is in um, disused coffee warehouses by the dockside, um, very near where my dad was, was born. So it was a kind of odd personal thing going back there. So obviously a huge amount of Hamburg d destroyed in the, uh, during the war. But um, these warehouses now house a railway that is, if you take all the track and just keep on going, rather than it, obviously it bends all, all over the place, runs for 10 miles. Um, and they realized, the two people who set up me, me in the of Wonderland, and I, um, you know, I was very, very careful in the book, only to hint at um, German aggrandizement here, felt that Germany wasn't enough for them. And so they <laughs> go, or uh, thank God this isn't being recorded. 
they, they then go all, all over the world. And the, the train runs all over. The railway itself is a quite a boring thing going back and forth. But if you put it in a beautiful landscape, yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. Now, it should be said, this is an extraordinary endeavour that they're doing. I felt a little bit uneasy. It was all a little bit too clean and a little bit too digitised with all the con- controls and stuff. So, for instance, the, the, the railway runs to Italy and it goes to Pompeii. And every 20 minutes, Vesuvius uh, erupts and covers... <laughs> these people and you want to say you know having seen this once you want to say you know it's the Vesuvius run for your lives run for your lives and they never do they just stay there and they get covered um, and so there's a bit too much of that for uh, my, my liking which doesn't exist in the old ones you've got a, a quote here from Tim Dunn which I'm going to read out which struck me as being a wonderful thing to read out in the London uh, Review of Books bookshop uh, where Tim Dunn uh, is defending hobbyists and uh, makers of model villages and he's, he's, he's defending them against the accusation that they're in any way weird or abnormal. And he says, I think it's a bit like gardening, the desire to tame and to beautify, and you mustn't deride how people find their happiness. You could argue that the most reclusive hobby and the least social is reading books. <laughs> and no one regards readers of books as misfits or socially inadequate. <laughs> I wanted to say to him, that's not been my experience. But, uh, um, so, speaking of books, there's a wonderful chapter in here about tiny books, mm. about the, the, which goes back centuries, right? The art of making miniature books which contain, say, the whole Bible or uh, the works of Shakespeare, or, and that's still a thriving scene. Yeah, and it should be said that, you know, I, I look at the, the roots of, uh, of uh, miniaturisation uh, in cultural terms, and it, it begins both with miniature portraits and miniature books. And miniature books... Um, the, the term miniature, sorry, the term miniature is yeah. derived from portraiture, is exactly, that right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. From, from, a, um, from miniare, which is the, uh, the Latin, and it's, um, which is itself a der- derivation of the word li- limning, which is illustrating hand-illustrating books. The, the in, interesting thing to me, uh, for, for me, was that one forgets that miniature objects often have a very, very practical use. So miniature por- portraiture, not so popular these days, had, a, you know, obviously very, very beautiful things, um, but they had a purpose as a sort of calling card. They were the ultimate gift you could give to someone, um, very uh, obviously, you have to be very wealthy to do these. But you would commission a portrait for a friend, or if you were uh, royalty, um, you would George the Fourth. You would you would give one of these to your lovers as um, a, a very egotistic form of um, you know love. The miniature books sorry, uh, began very much as practical things. If you were in any way religious, you would want to carry around a Bible or uh, religious tracts of some sort uh, about your person, mm. maybe about your heart or maybe on your belt, and they would be made small. And this became popular. And obviously, as a scribe, you could do them. But in terms of uh, the popularization of these, they absolutely began with Gutenberg and the printing press and Aldous Minutius making italic type, which meant you get a lot more words on a page. And they found that there was great competition to make the smallest book that you could could make and still read. Now, some of these books 
You can only read with a magnifying glass, but a lot you can read in kind of two-point type. Um, and uh, I think, so I begin with this, but then I kind of go to the, what I call the exciting world of the miniature book society. Um, and I attend a conference in um, the Hilton Hotel in Oakland, California, where there are um, 300 people obsessing about how small you can make a book and how beautiful you can make a book as well. I mean, mm. they are, they are, those are the two concerns. How small, how, how small and readable, and then how small and ridiculous as well. So there are examples of books that you can absolutely only read with a little mom, uh, microscope. Um, there are examples of, of people, uh, many Siberians specialize in this. And I still, having written a book about miniature things, I don't know why Siberians are so good at miniaturizing things. Uh, and um, yeah, any ideas? I don't want to say the obvious things, like it's so cold, we're laughing. And so uh, it's obviously not true. So um, the, um, and they make, make things that you can only see with a microscope that you can't really classify. Uh, as um, a book at all. There is, you know, I, there's, I'm going to have to, I think, quote uh, from, from this because I, um, otherwise I'll get it wrong. But my favourite joke in the whole book is, um, here we go, okay, 87, is um, scientists at, I think, MIT, 1985, nano technologists reproduce the entire opening page of A Tale of Two Cities onto the head of a pin, clearly not a book, reducing a regular 10-point typeface to one twenty-fifth thousandth of its size. And then, my joke, told publicly for the first time in the LRB is, it was the best of times New Roman, it was the worst of times New Roman. It's a round of a, I a polite you. ripple, I think, for that. Yes, the very, the very, <laughs> the very definition of a smatter for you, though. <laughs> I'm going to open it up to questions in a minute. You've got five minutes to be thinking of this incredible question that's going to blow us away. I do want to say a little bit about model railways because you mentioned that the model railway that runs for how many, how long, how many miles of track? Hamburg, say? ten miles. Uh, you quite rightly investigate the relationship between uh, model ra railway enthusiasts and rock stars. The rock stars seem very drawn to, um, uh, like Neil Young famously, I'm a huge Neil Young fan, Neil Young fan owns shares in Lionel, the model railway company. And Rod Stewart is a uh, keen... Rod Stewart, when he goes on tour, has mm. a portable version of his rig that he hires a separate suite for, so he can go and yeah. not even yeah. play with the trains. He, if he's doing a big, if he's doing a, like, you know, a, a two-week stint in Las Vegas, he will say, set up, absolutely, in his suite, and his friends will come in and set this up. And he says it's the only way that he can really relax after a gig. I tell you what, we, we didn't plan this. <laughs> of course. We didn't plan this. Can we do a double act of the, of the interview between him and Piers Morgan? Yes. Okay, this is, this, is, this is probably never to be repeated. What page? Page 153. Okay. So I promise you we haven't talked about this for one second. Who's, who's Piers? So who is Piers? Um, you be Piers. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Of course. Right, and I'm the innocent Rod, Rod Stewart. So maybe from here... And you just read this as... When Morgan first mentioned his train set, 
Stuart responded as if he'd just insulted his wife. A train set? His, and, I, I, and then I say his layout was 1,500 square feet, hardly a set. What does it bring you? It's like any hobby, man. <laughs> it's just brilliant. I don't get stressed, but if I do get a little stressed, I go, fuck it, I'm going upstairs and spend a couple of hours. I get permission from Penny. Is it all right if I disappear on the third floor and just work on my hobby? Is it the size of this room? <laughs> it's the length of his, uh, it's the length of this house. He's interviewing in, 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 in his house. Is it like this room is such an insight? It's the length of his house, he says. I have to say, reading Piers Morgan's questions without his natural charisma does really, <laughs> does really reveal him as not that good an interviewer. How many trains do you have? Rod Stewart turned around to look at the producer. Are people still watching this? He wondered aloud. It's not a question of trains, he explained patiently. It's a question of scale and detail. I base my layout on the 1940s New York <laughs> Central Pennsylvania line. I love it, man. I really do. And I take it everywhere with me. Do you like being the driver or the station master? <laughs> Morgan continued as if referring to coded sexual behaviour. <laughs> now, don't take the piss. I don't wear a, li a little hat. It's a, it's a lovely hobby. It's like reading a book or painting a picture. Reading a book. It's three-dimensional. You know, it's wonderful. And I sort of, I believe Rod, you know, I kind of think it is a, it is a wonderful thing. So, should we open it up to questions mm. from the lovely audience? Should we show them what the prize is first, to inspire them or not? Have you all had a good chance to think about an amazing question? Well, let's see, let's see what the prize is. The prize is one of 50 editions of this. <gasps> yeah. Uh, which is um, a miniature version. It's only half of the book, but it's all... The first half is all here, and it's a beautiful thing. It's printed... Um, uh, by hand in America, and everything is pretty much exactly the same. And there are only 50 of them in existence, so there we go. So I think the best question... And Simon will, will sign that in tiny writing. Uh, of course I will. Okay. So um, if you have a question, please raise your hand. Is there a mic going around as well? Great. There's a mic there. Who has Great. a question? This Here gentleman right. in the front row, and then this lady in the front row. Oh, hi there. Um, is, at the risk of mentioning that subject, is Brexit an attempt to create a miniature United Kingdom? <laughs> well, it's, um, there is a mention of Brexit in the book. And uh, it's when I'm talking about the model village in Berwick and Scott, and it's sort of set in the 1930s. And I realise, um, going round, uh, that actually it's not really the 90s, not a pure sort of 1930s. They've sort of changed things over the years. But I realised, actually, this is an ideal England that they've created. And uh, it's, it's, you know, as I said, the attempt to make things perfect is sort of clearly uh, one element. Uh, an attempt to go back, because obviously not all of it was built in the 1930s, some of it was added to uh, over the years. To go back to what we think is an ideal England is obviously the key. And I do uh, sort of pretty much end, end up at Beck and Scott by thinking, yeah, this is you know, the full English Brexit. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, I, I think that's, that's true of a certain uh, am amount of, you know, uh, things that maybe we, we do here. It's an ideal, 
ideal world. But I wouldn't like to tar, you know, I wouldn't like to tar anything like, you know, so many miniaturists with, with that feeling. So there's, there's a, um, a, a chap who did these, I mean, he's got books of his own, a wonderful guy called Slinkachew, who I don't think he's here tonight, is he? I think mean, he was going to come and he had a cold. Who, um, I, I, you probably can't. Mm. Actually, what, I tell you what, you can see a lot more because I do have some wonderful pictures. He, uh, what, he goes around the world, so it's an absolutely kind of global interest for him um, and does these, so this was on the cover of Granta, does these things which tell you something else about the world and not about a perfect England or a perfect Britain or Britain or, or the UK withdrawing from Europe, but other things. So this is how we now control the natural world. So this is a drone butterfly, if you can see that. Just a wonderful thing. You can build your own interpretations on, on these things. Yes, you had a question. Um, thank you. So have you got miniatures out of your system now? Because <laughs> um, or, or all these other things. You write and you talked about as an act of education. Mm. But do you maintain your interest in all these subjects once That's you've written the book? Question. Or do you have some sort of AA 12-point plan of renunciation <laughs> uh, before you go on to the next obsession? Um, well, it's, I, don't, I don't know. You know, I sometimes think I am a bit like a sort of, you know, the classic Peter Cook definition of a high court judge. They can remember like three things, you know, their name, where they live and where they went to school. And if you ask them what they had for dinner, they forget their name. You know, it's like that. <laughs> so there's, there is an element of that. I do kind of wonder, well, actually, how much can I? But the, no, odd things. I retain odd things and I retain an interest. The hard thing is, is that because I become an instant e expert, um, and, uh, you know, with a, my, my training is journalistic. What tends to happen is that uh, people will say six years later, ten years later, can you come and give a talk about X, Y, and Z? And I say, um, I'd love to, but my knowledge of it, you know, I, I sort of feel I have to read my book, or I feel actually, you know, my, my thing I'm really interested in is, is this. And, and that, that kind of happens um, quite a lot. But yeah, no, but, but as you can see, the, the, the interest in the, so the typeface joke reappears and there's, you know, all that kind of stuff. So things, things do reverberate. I mean, the ones in a way that I'm very, I'm, I think I'm most proud of um, are, well, actually, I should, I should tell you because it is quite, it's quite interesting this, because um, you mentioned all those, all those books. Mm. And the, I really like um, In Miniature. I'm really not just saying that because it's new, because I don't necessarily always feel that friendly towards my books when they appear and then things change over time. I either like them more or less. Um, but with this and with the wrestling book that Andy mentioned, the reason I, I like the wrestling book so much is that it's pretty close to what I intended to do when I set out two years before I, I began that book. Um, and it's also pretty much the best book I think that anyone could do on that subject, given the fact that half the people in there have now died anyway. Um, so I kind of think, well, have I, you know, have I achieved what I intended to do? And often, often the answer is no. Often I will be 60%, but on this I'm 80, 90%. But can I just say one more thing, which I, I just thought was hilarious, which, which sort of not actually, doesn't really chime with your question, I'm afraid. But um, I... And I want to show, show you this is true. This is another LRB thing. I thought, no, I, this is absolutely germane to um, tonight. So inevitably, when you write a new book, you want to check 
whether there's any interest on Amazon. And you find that actually, no, you're languishing behind, you know, internet sensation, YouTube sensations, and uh, many, many, many versions, you know, above you on the Amazon chart of um, um, an inspector calls or something, you know. And, um, but um, you, also, you also get an, a fee feeling on Amazon. You also get listed if you're in any charts at all. And so on the Amazon wrestling bestsellers, okay, for some reason, because it's all algorithmic and everything else and people make mistakes, in miniature is number one on the wrestling <laughs> chart. Congratulations. Okay, Nowhere else. But can I just ask you to read out what is number six on the wrestling charts? Uh, number six <laughs> is Susan Sontag's Styles of Radical Will. <laughs> Very good. I mean, seriously, look. I'm Best not joking, wrestling. am I? Best Susan I, Sontag, who knew? I torture Simon anyway. by uh, trying to find new questions to ask him about wrestling and his book, The Wrestling, which is one of my favourite books. And uh, this is no exception. Uh, how do you feel about the return of wrestling to ITV on Saturdays? Oh, my gosh. You see, I know you've come for this question. Uh, it's, really. It feels a um, bit EDL to me. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a bit... It's like bringing back the musical. You, can't, you can physically do it. You can put people throwing each other. But it's not the same. It's not just not the same because we're no longer young and we're no longer think this is a bizarre ritual yeah. on a sa Saturday afternoon. But, um, the, you know, the, the boat sails, and, and it, has, it has gone on now, I'm, I'm afraid. So. Was it, do, you, do we know if it was a success I don't in, know. In, in viewer terms? I don't, I don't know, really. Um, it, it, could, it certainly couldn't have been anything like the success of the original wrestling, no, where, sure, sure, sure. you know, the Queen watched, and 10 and a half million people, and more people watched the wrestling before the cup final than the actual cup final. I mean, extraordinary things. So uh, the answer is no, I think. <laughs> uh, do we have we any more, more? We need more, more questions, please. Yes, now. this gentleman here just on the right. And then somebody was waving at the back. Yes, okay, you next. Yeah. Um, you talk about the need for control as a child and playing with toys as a child as being um, like part of the instinct towards miniaturization. And then you talk about Rod Stewart on the third floor of his house just having a bit of a tinker with his vast train set. Do you think, and that instinct to shut yourself away and also to play, do you think that the instinct to make miniatures is the same as the instinct to write novels and series of novels where you just keep building and building? And, and you building? control your own world. Um, yeah, it's a different art, uh, clearly. And it's a, it's a, you know, a very different skill. Um, God, I mean, that's so, it's so open-ended, that, isn't it? Have you written novels? Written fiction? fiction. Any fiction? No. Written any fiction? No, no, I, no. It's, I, I imagine it is a very, very... I think the, you must feel similar frustra frustrations. Uh, I think you must feel similar elations. Uh, models generally don't tend to go out in the world beyond the shed, um, unlike novels, if you're successful. Um, and uh, I think you're pretty much working for yourself if you're a miniaturist. That's not to say you can't maybe sell your work. Um, I don't think you take on issues the way you would. So the answer is that there are clearly elements of where you shut yourself away and you like that sense of you, isolation. You talk in the book about, I think this might be a difference, you talk in the book about how modelers don't really want to finish modeling 
if yeah. they can keep yeah. going and, yeah. and, and expanding and expanding and building new countries and new towns, yeah. that's what they'll do. Whereas, I suppose, writing a novel, you want to seal the world to some extent. I mean, Or, or novelists often but, talk yeah. about that they, they don't want to give it up. You know, and pain to say, well, when's it finished? It's finished when it's in the gallery or it's finished when it's at the pre-inters, you know, not before then. Um, so you're right, but I mean, the classic... Mm. Example I use in in the book is um, where a place in um, called Pendon, where they've been modelling this. It's sort of um, I'm trying to think of the. It's Derbyshire, I think, is the main the main village that they're trying to model, and these are very very serious modellers, and they've been doing this. I mean, the original guy who made it's long dead. They've been doing this for. Um, 50 or 60 years and show no sign of completion. And, and as you said, they don't absolutely don't want this because what A, what will they do next? And B, it'll never be perfect. So I think the sense of perfection is great. I think novelists will argue a novel is never perfect. It's what they, the best they could do at the, mm. at, at, mm. at the time. The great thing with the miniatures, obviously, you can always you know, add to it, mm. I think. Question at the back. Admitted that you weren't very good at Lego. Uh, were you any good at Sabutio? Sabutio? Oh. God. Well, one of my sons is here, so um, he will tell you that the biggest Sabutio disaster was when we bought a new pitch and I tried to iron it, and uh, then <laughs> basically melted. So I think the answer <laughs> of that is probably not so good either. I was good on the. I was good on those very random shots you take from the. You know, from one. Um, goal is straight into the other, but in terms of uh, tactics, maybe I should have been better as a writer, trying to sort of work out what would go, but uh, no. Uh, one more question. Yes. Is there, a, have you, I mean, we're dealing with scale here. Is there, is there an, uh, an aesthetic peak somewhere in the, in, in the sort of sliding scale between very small and very similar to the thing you're copying? So, so, so hmm. a slightly smaller car wouldn't be so appealing, perhaps. You know, a few, few centimetres smaller in each direction. Yeah, well, certainly not as interest, interesting to me. I mean, the, the big uh, sort of trend, I suppose, if you see it as that, although people don't see... I mean, you know, the doll's house people keep themselves, the railway people keep, keep themselves. Um, this may be the first time in this book that so many disparate types of miniaturists have been brought together under one roof, as it were. Uh, so uh, they, you know, so no, no one competes in that sense. But I think uh, for me, the interest is always in the smaller and the trend is always in the smaller. It's that sort of hey, wow thing. It's that also that element of, of, of seeing um, something, maybe for the first time we're seeing something clearer. I mean, I can give you an example of that. I mean, we've talked quite a lot about sort of, uh, I suppose, the lighter side of things. There's, there's one or two, um, I think, very significant stories in the book. Uh, and one, which sort of answers your question in, in, in a way, um, is about the attempt to reform the slave trade slave trade at the end of the 18th uh, century. So anyone who really knew about the slave trade and had uh, um, you know, a, a humane attitude towards fellow human beings realized that this wasn't the way to treat um, your, in this case, fellow man, because they were all black slaves. Um, and um, it was, um, I'm sure you know, this triangular trade where, uh, where, where slaves came in from Africa, they came into Liverpool, they went to the Jamaican 
sugar plantations. Many, many, many institutions we now know and love got rich on the back of uh, the sugar trade. But these slaves were kept in incredibly, well, the worst conditions in ships. Uh, and they were shackled together and they were crammed together and many of them didn't survive the journey. People knew about this. Uh, William Wilberforce got up in Parliament, campaigned against it. People couldn't quite understand the scale of the problem. They thought, hang on, a lot of people are getting rich here. This is going to affect huge economies. Uh, we have huge interests in Parliament saying, no, the slave trade, you know, they wouldn't call it that, but you know, the sugar trade is great. What happened was a banker and royal academician painter called William Alford went to Liverpool and drew a very detailed description of what it was like inside the hull of one of these slave, slave ships, and it's called the Brooks. And he made a poster of this, very famous. Actually, some of it appears on back of um, the, one of the Bob Marley albums. I can't remember which one, I'm afraid. Um, Exodus. This had a big impact on people, but it was only when an unknown person made it into a wooden model, which was this big, and I can absolutely show you this here, that people fully understood what this was all about. It's a classic case of seeing something for the first time. This is the model here, uh, which is in the Wilberforce Museum in Hull. And around here, around the deck, are pictures of all the slaves, and in here, all the slaves. And it was only when this was passed around the House of Commons that the message got home. Now, this model in itself didn't end the slave trade, but it hastened its de demise. Um, and a similar one was made in, in France. And your answer, in a way, you know, bringing things down to scale, incredibly important had this been you know, much smaller, it would have been very, very hard to see the ships. But being passed around in your hands, the idea of having these people's lives literally in your hands and being able to see for the first time exactly what it was like made a huge difference to the ending of the slave trade. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Simon. Um, I am going to say this because uh, we're in the LRB bookshop. In Miniature was the first book that I read after... Uh, successfully finishing Proust's In Search of Lost Time. <laughs> uh, uh, a book that Cocteau, I subsequently discovered, uh, described as a gigantic miniature. So if you are looking for an alternative to Proust, uh, <laughs> Simon's book will make an excellent choice. Um, we're just going to have a very 30-second yeah. conflab about who gets the uh, miniature book and then... Um, Turn, turn the turn mics, the mics off. off. <laughs> <laughs> well, who do we know? No, um, sir, here on the right, you, sir, please come up to the front and receive your round of applause for this gentleman, hey. please. Here we are. Thank you. And I'll sign that for you if you like. Please, a big round of applause for Simon Garfield. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.